So if you have your phone turned on, please turn it off. And uh, I was reading about a, a young pastor who was just on his first assignment as a pastor of a church, and he was livid when he found out his uh, wife had bought a dress for $250 around a very meager budget. <clears throat> and uh, she just said, well, he said, how could you do this? Spend $250 on a dress. And she said, well, I was outside the store looking at the dress in the window, and suddenly I found myself trying it on. She explained, it was like Satan was whispering in my ear, you look fabulous in this dress. <laughs> Buy it. And her husband said, well, you know how I deal with that kind of temptation. I say, get behind me, Satan, said her husband. She said, well, I did. But then he said, it looks fabulous from the back, too. <laughs> anyway, it's kind of reminded me of Peter and that whole story the other week. But <clears throat> anyways, well, all of us hate the experience of being misunderstood by others <clears throat> and spoken to down to as a result. We can take great comfort, though, in the fact that Jesus knows all of the facts about the truth. I love how he stands up for Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, in our chapter today, declaring that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, Mary is going to be remembered in her kind deed to Jesus, even though everybody in that room completely misunderstood her and misjudged her and criticized her. Mary paints a picture of incredible love and selfless devotion for Jesus, but before we look at that in our chapter, uh, begins our study with the religious leaders of Jerusalem getting a meeting together to plot how they can kill Jesus. So these first verses are in complete stark contrast to Mary. So we look at verse 1. Now the pass of unleavened bread uh, were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were se seeking to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. So it's Wednesday night of Passion Week. Some say it's Tuesday night. Uh, Jesus had just finished the Olivet Discourse that we studied last week about the end times and his coming back again, the end of the age. The religious leaders, though, have determined they must eliminate Jesus, and they're trying to figure out the best way to get this done. So it's Passover, as you know, the celebration where the Jewish people still to this day remember <clears throat> the angel of death passing over all of the Jewish people in Egypt and bringing about ultimate deliverance. During this time, Jewish people from all over Israel and the Roman Empire itself all came to Jerusalem. It's estimated, some said 2 million, some say 3 million people flooded the city talk about crowds. <clears throat> Jesus was a popular figure among so many of the Jewish people at this time, so the leaders were afraid to arrest him because there might be a riot. So they knew they could only arrest him when he was away from the crowds in a quiet, deserted place. So their dilemma is solved, and we read about that in verse 10 when we read, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this, and they promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. So our text now takes the leader's plot to kill Jesus and connects it with the help of Judas and his betrayal of Jesus. And in between those two things, though, is the story of Mary and her love and devotion for Jesus. Now, we see three characteristics, really, that Mary shows us by her act of worship to Jesus. 
While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. We see in Mary someone with a grateful heart. Jesus had been invited to the home of Simon, a man clearly healed by him of leprosy. And John tells us that Martha and Mary and Lazarus were all there as well as the 12 disciples. And while reclining at the table, Mary did this most amazing thing for Jesus. She came with this alabaster vial that was filled with very costly, expensive perfume of nard, and she broke open the vial and poured it over his head. John tells us she also poured it on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, the room could, can you imagine the smell of the pure nard just overtaking the entire room? No one expected she would do this. No one asked her to do this, and it caught everyone off guard. Mary had such a heart filled with gratitude, certainly most likely at the top of her list for raising Lazarus from the dead. She had given some thought about what could she do to express her great love and gratitude to Jesus for all he had done for her and her family. And her grateful heart led her to a place of true devotion. And she expresses it in this way by opening this jar of expensive perfume. This should be really the heart of every one of us who have come to faith in Jesus and trusted him as the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life that he has given to each of his children, there should be this same level of commitment to worship, to obey, because we are so grateful for what he has done for us. Paul reminds us that based on the mercies of God, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. To be a grateful believer demands that we think about the things God has done, on our behalf and our mouths should be filled with praise and our hearts filled with gratitude and ladies this is something we all need to be cultivating in our lives it's so easy to become so focused only on our trials our challenges our physical aches and pains that we fail to be thankful and grateful for all he has done on our behalf mary was so overwhelmed with gratitude as she thought about how could I best express this to Jesus, and she decided to take her most valued earthly possession and lavishly pour it all out on him. Not only was she grateful in her heart, but she was so generous. <clears throat> Notice verses 4 and 5. But some were indignant, indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. So as Mary is pouring out this very costly perfume, which belonged to her, <clears throat> out of her heart of love and devotion for Jesus, the Lord's disciples were startled and became instantly critical of her action. Mary had um, that all-too-familiar experience of being misunderstood and misjudged for what she was doing. They criticized her for wasting expensive perfume worth over a year's wages. This product came from India. <clears throat> it came on camel through mountain ranges and at great cost to get to Israel and be purchased. Not only did the disciples criticize Mary, but they felt they had a better idea of what she should have done with her you know, own possession of this expensive perfume, should have been sold and given the money to the poor. Certainly, it, was a wonderful, it is a wonderful thing to feed the poor. 
And throughout the ministry of Jesus, he had a great concern for the poor. But in this situation, Jesus condemned his disciples and commended Mary for her behavior. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. I love how Jesus protected Mary and came to her defense. We read in John 12 that leading the attack verbally on Mary was Judas because he was the one who kept the money and he used to skim money off the top. So obviously he was concerned why there wasn't more to fill the pot. But it was all the disciples who joined in in agreement with what he had said. And they expressed great disapproval to Mary, like you were really foolish to do this. The poor, as I said, are important to minister to. But at that moment, Jesus' ministry was coming to an end, his earthly ministry. And the top priority of Mary was to do something to show her devotion and love. Devotion to Jesus is to have no limits. It is to be generous. It is to hold back nothing. She didn't try to calculate how much of it to use or how much financial security is going to be lost in my old age here by doing this act of love. She didn't measure out 10% of the perfume to use on Jesus. She gave Jesus all of her most prized possession. We see in Mary that true devotion doesn't calculate and count the cost. She gave to Jesus what meant the most to her out of her heart of love and gratitude for all he had done for her. And each of us should have the same mindset because in truth, all that we are and all that we have is his temporarily on loan to us to use for him. Your bank account, your savings, your home, your car, all of your possessions, your children, they are all gifts that we are to give back to him. I suspect if Mary had more to give, she would have given more as well. So Mary shows us that unrestrained, generous devotion to Jesus honors him and truly pleases him. She simply gave Jesus her best because she loved him so much. To everyone in the room, it seemed impractical and foolish. But sometimes the Holy Spirit prompts us to do something that may seem foolish to other people, but we ought to obey his prompting. If you follow Mary's example, be prepared to be criticized as using poor judgment or misspending your money. It is never a waste to worship Jesus and adore him by giving what is most valuable of what we have to him for his service. His approval is really the only opinion that matters. We have seen in Mary her devotion to Jesus by her gratitude and uh, generosity. But all this was based on her understanding of the truth about Jesus. She She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Her incredible devotion to Jesus is based on her understanding of the truth about him, who he is, who, how the scriptures revealed who he was. You know, out of all the men in that room, it seems to be Mary is the one who really understands. His death is imminent. He's going to die. And she anoints Jesus in preparation. Of course, it would only be later that she'd fully grasp the cross and its meaning But she had sat at his feet and listened to him on many, many occasions, learning from him and worshiping him. Opportunities to show Jesus' love were coming to an end 
because his death was at hand. And the fact that we're reading about her and studying her and you answered questions about her thousands of years later is just evidence of Jesus' promise being fulfilled. <clears throat> this story has been talked about for thousands of years. So when was the last time you sat still long enough at the feet of Jesus, listening to him speak to you through his word and taking the time for you to speak back to him? When was the last time you expressed your deep gratitude and generosity to Jesus by doing some loving deed? I pray that each of us in this room will be more like Mary, in awe of our great Savior and having a heart that is overflowing with love and devotion to him. Well, that brings us to the Passover celebrated. Clearly, I'm not covering 72 verses. I can't even read them that quick <clears throat> in our brief time together. So we're, we're kind of flying around this chapter. The Passover lamb was selected on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, which is always falls in our March and April, and then was slain on the 14th day of that month. <clears throat> this had to be done in the temple and the meal eaten, the Seder eaten within Jerusalem. So Peter and John saw to the preparations for the Passover meal to be made, and they were instructed by Jesus to follow a man carrying a pitcher of water, which would have stood out because men don't carry pitchers of waters. It's a woman's job. <clears throat> but it appears Jesus had secured the place ahead of time that they would celebrate the Passover in the large upper room, which really makes sense when you figure an extra few million people are in town. I mean, where you're planning a Seder meal together, there is a little foresight needed. <clears throat> so the meal consisted of the same food Jewish people ate back in the night of the first Passover in Egypt. So many things happened during this meal that Mark doesn't cover in his gospel account. Between verses 17 and 18, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, according to John 13. And then Jesus was troubled as he spoke. There is a traitor here among them, and everybody's asking, is it me? Is it me? Shocking all of them. How could it be? <clears throat> and then at that point, Judas, who appears to have a place of honor, sitting next to Jesus, John on his right, Judas on his left. And when Jesus, gave, uh, when Jesus gave Judas the bread and dipped it in the herbs and gave it to him, it really was another gracious act. Are you really going to do what you're going to do, Judas? But at that time, Satan entered in to possess Judas. Judas had done what he wanted to do, <clears throat> and now he was empowered by Satan, who at that moment left the upper room to make his final arrangements for the betrayal within a few hours. After Judas was gone, the Lord instituted the supper. No, we call the Lord's Supper or communion because he was going to give new meaning to the bread and to the wine that was celebrated every Passover meal. Nowhere does it say this actually became his body and blood in the scriptures as he sat with them, but rather it was a reminder to the disciples and to all who love Jesus that he has sacrificed his life for us. The old covenant was based on the blood of an innocent lamb dying for guilty sinners. <clears throat> the new covenant is based on the blood of Jesus and he being the sacrificial lamb. The command of Jesus was to take this bread and wine and eat it in remembrance of him. And of course, in the Gospel of John, <clears throat> chapter 14, we love that chapter. So much comfort, so much hope. He prays for us specifically in that chapter, the upper room discourse by Jesus, and that speaks of all, the future of all of believers. All that was, that's what was going on um, at this time as well as when he was making the new covenant. And then they sang their traditional Passover hymn based on a psalm and left the upper room. 
Now, at this point, Peter denies that he would deny Jesus. <clears throat> Verses 27 through 31, I'm going to kind of combine the rooster crowing episode and this all happening. We learn from this event, really, the spiritual disaster that's about to happen in the life of Peter and the other disciples as well. <clears throat> and we can learn from this the steps what not to do to avoid having the same spiritual disasters in our own lives. And the first thing is the sin of pride. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. So now Jesus is with his 11. They're headed <clears throat> to the Mount of Olives, a very familiar place they went to. When Jesus makes a startling prediction about every one of the disciples, they would all fall away that night. This word fall away has the thought of stumbling or being caught in a trap. And Jesus is actually quoting here Zechariah 13, 7, predicting the shepherd, his arrest, and causing the disciples to be scattered. <clears throat> and even in this little tidbit, Jesus gives hope for the future. And as he states that he'll go ahead of them ultimately to Galilee. <clears throat> but Peter says to him, even though all may fall away, I will not. Here again, we see Peter contradicting what Jesus said. <laughs> In other words, Jesus, you're wrong about this, at least about me. <clears throat> Peter really thought he was the spiritual leader. I had a little cut above the rest of the group. He thought he was more capable of handling any crisis. Peter thought too highly of himself, and he failed to see how weak a vessel he was and how he was capable of committing the most horrific of sins. Peter really thought he loved Jesus more than the rest. <coughs> Excuse me. He did not believe he would ever fall this way. This is always a step to spiritual disaster if you think yourself mature spiritually beyond any particular sin. Peter thought he was so strong in the Lord beyond the reach of Satan and his own weak flesh. So if you think that you would never do, you fill in the blank, <coughs> excuse me, then you are like Peter and you've deceived your own heart. Jesus had warned Peter in Luke 22 about the temptation ahead of him, but Peter didn't believe Jesus. His attitude is really a warning to each of us. If you think that you can stand, you better take heed because that's setting you up for the fall. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us that too. If you think you are strong and that what uh, has happened to someone else you know about, but it could never happen to you. You'd never take another man's wife. You'd never injure your child. You'd never, you fill in that blank. Then you are self-deceived. You are mistaken, just like Peter. Peter truly believed he loved Jesus so much he would never abandon him. But Jesus then tells Peter that he would not deny Jesus one time. Oh, no, it would be three times before a rooster crowed twice. And of course, that's exactly what happened as described in 66 through 72 of our chapter. <clears throat> as Peter had followed Jesus after that arrest at a distance, he was warming himself by the fire at that courtyard of the high priest where Jesus had been taken. And when Peter denied Jesus that third time and he began to swear and said, I don't know this man you're talking about, Luke tells us, in his account, that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord that he had said, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept. <laughs> Peter, 
could have been paralyzed the rest of his life with the vision of that look. But the Lord healed him. I mean, forgave him, and he moved on. We need to take heed so we do not make the same mistakes as Peter. Is there anyone you think you are spiritually better than? (laughs) That you think you're not capable of doing their sins because you love Jesus so much? The Bible makes it clear that our hearts are wicked and depraved and capable of the worst sins imaginable. And it's simply our pride that sets us up (laughs) for the biggest fall. Thank the Lord, Peter learned his lesson well. And God, you know how he used him. What a lesson. Peter went on to serve with boldness to pen first and second Peter for us. No longer confident in himself, Peter came to understand there is no spiritual battle he could handle himself. The second step to spiritual disaster we learn from Peter and the disciples is prayerlessness. How many times have I said this in the study of of Mark? This is, I think, at least the third or fourth time. Prayerlessness. Peter may have had a determined will to follow Jesus, but you know you can be determined all you want with your will, but that's not going to cut it. With good intentions, they followed Jesus to a familiar gathering place called Gethsemane, literally an enclosed olive garden with a press where they'd press the olives. Jesus had instructed his disciples to sit at the entrance and pray as he went inside to pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He wanted them prepared. He wanted them to learn how to avoid spiritual disaster themselves. These three disciples who thought they could handle anything, they'd never desert Jesus. And they were so devoted to him, were about to learn the truth of their own hearts. Jesus taught them through his example of praying to the Father in the deepest hour of need and how absolutely necessary that is. We read that Jesus began to be very distressed and troubled. Jesus was overwhelmed with terror and sorrow to the point of death. Jesus knew what was coming and that he, what would happen on that cross. And as he looked into the face of his own death, he saw the wrath of God being poured out on him. And he was overwhelmed with the reality of God the Father forsaking him. And the thought of bearing the sin of every person who would ever believe. Though the physical suffering would be excruciating, that was not what was so troubling to Jesus. Rather, being forsaken by the Father... And Jesus at this point is being tempted by Satan to turn away from the cross. Jesus was showing these three beloved disciples how to face temptation, the worst you could ever face, but they kept falling asleep. Here is Jesus in his humanity, acknowledging his human weakness, acknowledging his great need for the Father's help and protection and strength in absolute contrast to the self-confident disciples taking a nap. Jesus was only a stone's throw from the three as he sank to the ground on his face and cried out in prayer to the Father, asking if it's possible, could you remove this cup? Could you remove this cup and this hour from me? The cup and the hour refer to the death and God's judgment in that death. As a man, Jesus cried out to God, asking if there's another way to save mankind. But he ended up in his prayer with yet not what I will, but what you will. 
Jesus looked into the cup and he saw it full of sin, immorality, jealousy, hatred, murder, impatience, anger, and on and on, everything you and I have ever done or thought who know him. And he saw the wrath of God against all of that sin as he cried out, Abba, Father, for deliverance. And yet, in spite of how he felt in his humanity, he submitted his will to the Father. Jesus then calls Peter Simon, because he's acting like the old Simon before he changed his name to Peter. And Peter, who said he's willing to die for Jesus, can't even stay awake to be alert. Jesus says, keep watching and praying that you will not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we all know that to be so true, don't we? It was critical to be spiritually alert. It was critical that the disciples be praying. Jesus summed up the truth about resisting temptation. As a believer, you may have the desire to do what's right, but the flesh is so stinking weak. And the way to avoid doing what our flesh desires and having this spiritual fall demands time alone with the Lord in prayer consistently. We are in a spiritual battle, ladies. You know that. Ephesians 6.10 reminds us we need to be dressed for the battle we're in. You don't even know what's coming today. When we discipline ourselves to spend time with the Lord in prayer, we find our wills being bent to his will for our lives. And the more we pray, the more submissive to God we find ourselves. We also discover areas in our lives that are not yielded to him when we're quiet enough and still long enough for him to speak to us through his word and the prompting of his spirit in our hearts. This is what Jesus was showing the three disciples by example. What a contrast between Jesus and his men. He's struggling. He's praying to the Father for strength to obey. The disciples are overconfident and fast asleep. Jesus is so strengthened then by the Father at this point that instead of waiting for the enemy to come to him, he gets up and goes out to meet the enemy. So we need to learn from Peter and his disciples what not to do. If you really think in your heart of hearts that you are not capable of any sin that you fill in that blank, then you are in a really vulnerable, dangerous place in your life. If you think yourself so spiritually mature, you would never fall, you'd never do what they did, then you're self-deceived and your pride has set you up. And you are a candidate for Satan. And if you do not see the need, the urgency, the absolute necessity to be in his presence and quiet before him every day in prayer and letting him speak to you through his word, then you are setting yourself up for spiritual disaster, just like Peter. This portion has been included in scripture so that we would learn from it and take heed, ladies, to our own hearts. There is also such comfort from this passage because God uses sinful failures like Peter and his men. Peter was forgiven. Peter was restored. Peter was used in a mighty way by the Lord in his life and death as a martyr. I love how one author spoke about Peter. He said, Peter's failures did not define him and ours do not define us. They are horrible, humbling stumbles along the path of following Jesus. And Jesus paid for them all on the cross. He has settled our accounts with the Father and given us guiltlessness as a free gift of love. The church of Jesus Christ is a fellowship of forgiven failures. In Peter, Jesus shows us how he can transform a failure into a rock of strength for his church. Empowered by the spirit of his beloved Lord, Peter became a humble, 
encouraging, suffering, and persevering disciple of Jesus. He remains a bold ambassador of the gospel of forgiveness to the most miserable failures. End of quote. Well, at this point, Jesus is betrayed and arrested. In a moment, Judas and the temple guard police all arrive to arrest him. And Judas kissed Jesus as a sign of who is the one to be arrested. That is not what a kiss is for. Did they think Jesus was going to try to run away? Jesus said to them, Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill scripture. And they all left him and fled. And Mark includes the naked one, too. <laughs> oh. <clears throat> the Jewish trial then was opened by Annas and then the, f- the former high priest. Then it was moved to the full council to hear witnesses. And then in the morning session, there would be a final vote of condemnation. Jesus would then be sent to Pilate, who would send him to Herod, who would send him back to Pilate, who would feel the pressure by the religious leaders to release Barabbas, and they incited the crowd to scream for Jesus to be crucified. And so he bent to the pressure. Peter and John had followed the soldiers at a distance to the high priest's home. Now, if you go today to Israel, you have discovered the home of Caiaphas. And I I never knew this till we went a couple years back. There's a huge hole that drops, I don't know, 50, 100 feet down to a pit below. And that is where they kept prisoners. So they would have to lower in a rope, you know, and lift up in a rope. So that's where Jesus would have spent the night in between those long hours waiting for the next session to begin. And Jesus was silent before his accusers. But when the high priest put him under oath, Jesus testified that he was indeed, as you said, the son of God. And they had all the justification they felt they needed to kill him. You see, all of their pent-up anger and resentment, and hatred being displayed now. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. All those arguments that they lost, all of their anger towards his condemnation of them, now they're taking it all out on him. This was just the beginning of what Jesus would suffer in order to purchase our salvation with his blood. This is love on display. Love that demands a response from everyone. So do you have a grateful, generous heart for this great Savior? Is he your Savior? Please don't leave here today without making sure you've surrendered your life to him and received his eternal forgiveness. And will you get alone with the Lord today? And express your gratitude to him in time and prayer. If you're too busy to do so, you're just too busy. And it's wrong. It's sin. So, ladies, we've been warned. So let us be on the alert. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what we've learned from Mary in particular. This passionate love and grateful heart and devotion and commitment to you and doing what cost her so much to just show you love. I pray that we would be like Mary. And I pray that we would learn from Peter and the other disciples, Lord, and not be so foolish to think that we can just be busy about our everyday life when it's characterized by prayerlessness. What fools we are. I pray for each one of us here, Lord, to faithfully be in your presence, in your word, 
and let you change how we think and how we behave, that we would honor you and not fall in temptation. In Jesus' name, amen.